Section 8 of The Adventures of Gerard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How the Brigadier Slew the Fox. Continued. It was soon evident that I had not been mistaken when I had thought that this might be the quarters of some person of importance. Shortly after daybreak, an English light dragoon arrived with a dispatch, and from then onward the place was in a turmoil officers continually riding up and away. Always the same name was upon their lips. Sir Stapleton, Sir Stapleton. It was hard for me to lie there with a dry moustache and watch the great flagons which were brought out by the landlord to these English officers. But it amused me to look at their fresh-coloured, clean-shaven, careless faces and to wonder what they would think if they knew that so celebrated a person was lying so near to them. And then, as I lay and watched, I saw a sight which filled me with surprise. It is incredible, the insolence of these English. What do you suppose my Lord Wellington had done when he found that Messina had blockaded him, and that he could not move his army? I might give you many guesses. You might say that he had raged, that he had despaired, that he had brought his troops together and spoken to them about glory in the fatherland, before leading them to one last battle? No, my lord did none of these things, but he sent a fleet ship to England to bring him a number of fox-dogs, and he, with his officers, settled himself down to chase the fox. It is true what I tell you. Behind the lines of Torre Vedras these mad Englishmen made the fox chase three days in the week. We had heard of it in the camp, and now I was myself to see that it was true for along the road which I have described there came these very dogs, thirty or forty of them, white and brown, each with its tail at the same angle, like the bayonets of the old guard. My faith, but it was a pretty sight, and behind and amidst them there rode three men with peaked caps and red coats, whom I understood to be the hunters. After them came many horsemen with uniforms of various kinds, stringing along the road in twos and threes, talking together and laughing. They did not seem to be going above a trot, and it appeared to me that it must indeed be a slow fox which they hoped to catch. However, it was their affair, not mine, and soon they had all passed my window and were out of sight. I waited and I watched, ready for any chance which might offer. Presently an officer, in a blue uniform, not unlike that of our flying artillery, came cantering down the road, an elderly stout man he was, with grey side-whiskers. He stopped and began to talk with an orderly officer of dragoons who waited outside the inn, and it was then that I learned the advantage of the English which had been taught me. I could hear and understand all that was said. "'Where is the meat?' said the officer, and I thought that he was hungering for his beefsteak. But the other answered him that it was near Altara, so I saw that it was a place of which he spoke. "'You are late, Sir George,' said the orderly. "'Yes, I had a court-martial. Has Sir Stapleton Cotton gone?' At this moment a window opened, and a handsome young man in a very splendid uniform looked out of it. "'Hello, Amari,' said he. "'These cursed papers keep me, but I'll be at your heels.' "'Very good, Cotton. I am late already, so I will ride on.' "'You might order my groom to bring round my horse,' said the young general at the window to the orderly below. 
while the other went on down the road. The orderly rode away to some outlying stable, and then in a few minutes there came a smart English groom with a cockade in his hat, leading by the bridle a horse. And, oh, my friends, you have never known the perfection to which a horse can attain until you have seen a first-class English hunter. He was superb, tall, broad, strong, and yet as graceful and agile as a deer. Coal-black he was in colour, and his neck and his shoulders and his quarters and his fetlocks. How can I describe him all to you? The sun shone upon him as on a polished ebony, and he raised his hoofs in a little playful dance, so lightly and prettily, while he tossed his mane and whinnied with impatience. Never have I seen such a mixture of strength and beauty and grace. I had often wondered how the English hussars had managed to ride over the chasseurs of the guards in the affair de Storga, but I wondered no longer when I saw the English horses. There was a ring for fastening bridles at the door of the inn, and the groom tied the horse there while he entered the house. In an instant I had seen the chance which fate had brought to me. Were I in that saddle I should be better off than when I started. Even Voltigeur could not compare with this magnificent creature. To think is to act with me. In one instant I was down the ladder and at the door of the stable. The next I was out and the bridle was in my hand. I bounded into the saddle. Somebody, the master or the man, shouted wildly behind me. What cared I for his shouts? I touched the horse with my spurs, and he bounded forward with such a spring that only a rider like myself could have sat him. I gave him his head and let him go. It did not matter to me where, so long as we left this inn far behind us. He thundered away across the vineyards, and in a very few minutes I had placed miles between myself and my pursuers. They could no longer tell in that wild country in which direction had gone. I knew that I was safe, and so, riding to the top of a small hill, I drew my pencil and notebook from my pocket, and proceeded to make plans of those camps which I could see, and to draw the outline of the country. He was a dear creature upon whom I sat, but it was not easy to draw upon his back, for every now and then his two ears would cock, and he would start and quiver with impatience. At first I could not understand this trick of his, but soon I observed that he only did it when a peculiar noise, yoy, 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 came from somewhere among the oak woods beneath us. And then, suddenly, this strange cry changed into a most terrible screaming, with a frantic blowing of a horn. Instantly he went mad, this horse. His eyes blazed, his mane bristled. He bounded from the earth and bounded again, twisting and turning in a frenzy. My pencil flew one way and my notebook another, and then, as I looked down into the valley, an extraordinary sight met my eyes. The hunt was streaming down it. The fox I could not see, but the dogs were in full cry, their noses down, their tails up, so close together that they might have been one great yellow and white moving carpet, and behind them rode the horsemen. My faith, what a sight! Consider every type which a great army could show, some in hunting dress, but the most in uniforms, blue dragoons, red dragoons, red trousered hussars, green riflemen, artillerymen, gold slash lancers, and most of all, red, 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 for the infantry officers ride as hard as the cavalry. Such a crowd, some well-mounted, some ill, but all flying along as best they might, 
the subaltern as good as the general, jostling and pushing, spurring and driving, with every thought thrown to the winds, save that they should have the blood of this absurd fox. Truly they are an extraordinary people, the English. But I had little time to watch the hunt or to marvel at these islanders, for of all these mad creatures the very horse upon which I sat was the maddest. You understand that he was himself a hunter, and that the crying of these dogs was to him what the call of a cavalry trumpet in the street yonder would be to me. It thrilled him, it drove him wild. Again and again he bounded into the air, and then, seizing the bit between his teeth, he plunged down the slope and galloped after the dogs. I swore and tugged and pulled, but I was powerless. This English general rode his horse with a snaffle only, and the beast had a mouth of iron. It was useless to pull him back. One might as well try to keep a grenadier from a wine-bottle. I gave it up in despair, and, settling down in the saddle, I prepared for the worst which could befall. What a creature he was! Never have I felt such a horse between my knees. His great haunches gathered under him with every stride, and he shot forward ever faster and faster, stretched like a greyhound while the wind beat in my face and whistled past my ears. I was wearing our undress jacket, a uniform simple and dark in itself, though some figures give distinction to any uniform, and I had taken the precaution to remove the long panache from my busby. The result was that, amidst the mixture of costumes in the hunt, there was no reason why mine should attract attention, or why these men, whose thoughts were all with the chase, should give any heed to me. The idea that a French officer might be riding with them was too absurd to enter their minds. I laughed as I rode, for indeed amid all the danger there was something of comic in the situation. I have said that the hunters were very unequally mounted, and so at the end of a few miles, instead of being one body of men, like a charging regiment, they were scattered over a considerable space, the better riders well up to the dogs, and the others trailing away behind. Now I was as good a rider as any, and my horse was the best of them all, and so you can imagine that it was not long before he carried me to the front, and when I saw the dogs streaming over the open, and the red-coated huntsman behind them, and only seven or eight horsemen between us, then it was that the strangest thing of all happened, for I too went mad. I, Etienne Gerard! In a moment it came upon me, this spirit of sport, this desire to excel, this hatred of the fox. A cursed animal! Should he then defy us? Vile robber! His hour was come! Ah, it is a great feeling, this feeling of sport, my friends, this desire to trample the fox under the hoofs of your horse. I have made the fox chase with the English. I have also, as I may tell you some day, fought the box fight with the bustler of Bristol. And I say to you that this sport is a wonderful thing, full of interest as well as madness. The farther we went, the faster galloped my horse, and soon there were but three men as near the dogs as I was. All thought of fear of discovery had vanished. My brain throbbed. My blood ran hot. Only one thing upon earth seemed worth living for, and that was to overtake this infernal fox. I passed one of the horsemen, a hussar like myself. There were only two in front of me now, the one in a black coat, the other the blue artilleryman whom I had seen at the inn. 
His grey whiskers streamed in the wind, but he rode magnificently. For a mile or more we kept in this order, and then, as we galloped up a steep slope, my lighter weight brought me to the front. I passed them both, and when I reached the crown I was riding level with the little hard-faced English huntsman. In front of us were the dogs, and then, a hundred paces beyond them, was a brown wisp of a thing, the fox itself, stretched to the uttermost. The sight of him fired my blood. "'Aha! We have you then, assassin!' I cried, and shouted my encouragement to the huntsman. I waved my hand to show him that there was one upon whom he could rely. And now there were only the dogs between me and my prey. These dogs, whose duty it is to point out the game, were now rather a hindrance than a help to us, for it was hard to know how to pass them. The huntsman felt the difficulty as much as I, for he rode behind them, and could make no progress toward the fox. He was a swift rider, but wanting in enterprise. For my part, I felt that it would be unworthy of the Hussars of Conflans if I could not overcome such a difficulty as this. Was Etienne Gerard to be stopped by a herd of fox-dogs? It was absurd. I gave a shout and spurred my horse. "'Hold hard, sir! Hold hard!' cried the huntsman. He was uneasy for me, this good old man, but I reassured him by a wave and a smile. The dogs opened in front of me. One or two may have been hurt, but what would you have? The egg must be broken for the omelette. I could hear the huntsman shouting his congratulations behind me. One more effort and the dogs were all behind me. Only the fox was in front. Ah, the joy and pride of that moment! To know that I had beaten the English at their own sport. Here were three hundred all thirsting for the life of this animal, and yet it was I who was about to take it. I thought of my comrades of the Light Cavalry Brigade, of my mother, of the Emperor, of France. I had brought honour to each and all. Every instant brought me nearer to the fox. The moment for action had arrived, so I unsheathed my sabre. I waved it in the air, and the brave English all shouted behind me. Only then did I understand how difficult is this fox chase for one may cut again and again at the creature and never strike him once. He is small and turns quickly from a blow. At every cut I heard those shouts of encouragement from behind me, and they spurred me to yet another effort, and then at last the supreme moment of my triumph arrived. In the very act of turning I caught him fair with such another backhanded cut as that with which I killed the aide-de-camp of the Emperor of Russia. He flew into two pieces, his head one way and his tail another. I looked back and waved the blood-stained sabre in the air. For the moment I was exalted. Superb! Ah, how I should have loved to have waited to have received the congratulations of these generous enemies! There were fifty of them in sight, and not one who was not waving his hand and shouting. They are not really such a phlegmatic race, the English. A gallant deed in war or in sport will always warm their hearts. As to the old huntsman, he was the nearest to me, and I could see with my own eyes how overcome he was by what he had seen. He was like a man paralysed, his mouth open, his hand, with outspread fingers, raised in the air. For a moment my inclination was to return and to embrace him. But already the call of duty was sounding in my ears, 
and these English, in spite of all the fraternity which exists among sportsmen, would certainly have made me prisoner. There was no hope for my mission now, and I had done all that I could do. I could see the lines of Messina's camp no very great distance off, for by a lucky chance the chase had taken us in that direction. I turned from the dead fox, saluted with my sabre, and galloped away. But they would not leave me so easily, these gallant huntsmen. I was the fox now, and the chase swept bravely over the plain. It was only at the moment when I started for the camp that they could have known that I was a Frenchman, and now the whole swarm of them were at my heels. We were within gunshot of our pickets before they would halt, and then they stood in knots and would not go away, but shouted and waved their hands at me. No, I will not think that it was in enmity. Rather would I fancy that a glow of admiration filled their breasts, and that their one desire was to embrace the stranger who had carried himself so gallantly and well. End of section 8 And end of How the Brigadier Slew the Fox